So uh, let's uh, go back to the series on the attributes of God that we are doing. So last time, you who were here, we talked about the infinity of God, the infinity of God, which means, of course, that God is infinite. He's unlimited. He's unlimited in space. He's unlimited in time, as opposed to us who are very much limited, very finite beings in time and in space. God is eternal, that's the time component, and he is omnipresent, space, he's everywhere present. He's everywhere and always present. So first, eternity of God means a few things. His existence, his very being, essence, is eternal. He has always existed and he always will exist. We see that in Genesis 1, he already exists. And in Revelation 22, he will still continue to exist. The only being who has no beginning and no end. He endures forever. His years cannot be discovered. We, we try to find out how old things are. We use different methods to, to put an age on different objects, but God cannot be aged. He cannot, you cannot put a, a meter on him and see how old he is because he has no years. There are no years to his being. He inhabits eternity. It is his home, his sphere, his dimension, so to speak. We live in time, but God lives in eternity. And it also means that his purposes are eternal. His purposes are eternal. His, his plans are eternal. What he has decided, what he has decreed, is eternal. It will never fail. It will never stop being. It will go on forever and ever. Our salvation is eternal. It's part of his decree. It's part of something that he does in time. But it's for an eternal purpose. Therefore, our salvation is guaranteed. It cannot fail. Otherwise, it wouldn't be eternal. And second, the omnipresence, which is also part of the infinite, infinity of God, is, means that God, of course, is everywhere present. He's present in every direction. North, south, east, west. Wherever you go, up into space or down into the earth, there is God. There's no single location within the whole universe where you will outrun God. The fact that the Bible says that that God is in heaven, read that many times, God in heaven, our Father who are in heaven, does not mean that that God is physically restrained to heaven, that he's only there, but it means that he is in the highest place, he inhabits the highest place, position that any being can inhabit. He is on the highest throne, so to speak. The winner in a race goes up on the, the podium, on the highest place on the podium. So God is on, in the highest place, in the heaven of heavens. But he's very much present here as well. doesn't mean that he's not on earth. It just means that he is the highest being. And this is, of course, both good and bad. It's good for us that he's everywhere. It's good that he's always with us. There's no place where we go where God is not. The missionaries who went forth to different places on, on the earth where Christianity had never been heard, never been preached. They had God with them. God was there with them. It was a good thing. He's always with us. He's, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's always with us. 
but it's bad for those who do not believe. Very, very bad. Bad because God is a perfect, he's an eternal, just judge. He will not stop being present when you sin. He will always be there. See it, notice it, record it, remember it. He's even present in hell. In hell. After the righteous are or the righteous judgment on the day of judgment, when the, the unrighteous are sent to hell, when they are judged and sent to hell, not even then will they outrun God. God will be there. But his grace will not any longer be shown towards the unrighteous. There will only be wrath. God will be there, but there will only be his wrath. An eternal, present, and angry God will be the unrighteous forever. So this was the infinity of God, that he is everywhere and always present. So for today, I'd like us to go look at the second omni, omniscience of God. The omniscience of God, that God is all-knowing. All-knowing, the omniscience of God. So God, that means that God perfectly knows himself, and he knows everything that is outside of himself, everything that is created, that is. God knows everything in time, in past, in, in present, in future, and he knows everything in eternity, outside time. God knows everything perfectly, comprehensively, and immediately. He never learns, never finds out anything. Our prayers, our petitions don't bring information to him. We don't instruct him when we pray to God. God, I want to inform you about my, my, uh, my distresses here. No, God already knows. There's no instruction to him. Whatever happens in time, whatever happens in creation is already known by God. No event is unforeseen or catches God by surprise. So these two aspects, that God knows himself perfectly, and then he knows everything outside of himself perfectly. These are our two focus points this, this Sunday. And in, in this, it should also be noted that, that he also knows all things that do not become reality. He knows all things that do not become reality. This does not mean that he knows everything that is possible, as in quotation marks. God's eternal plan only contains things which are actual. There are no possibilities in God's plan. There are only actual things. He knows what would have occurred if circumstances had been different, but since in God's mind there is a finality, a decree, a decision, there will be no other possibility. His, uh, his plans are final. They will become reality. They are final. And I mention this because you might have heard about some people talk about middle knowledge or Molinism. If you listen to maybe James White, people like that, they debate Molinists, those who hold middle knowledge, which is basically that God knows what, what a a being who possesses libertarian free will, autonomous free will is another word for it, 
what that being would do in any particular situation. He knows in every single different outcome. But the outcome is not dependent on God, but on the being. So that is middle, middle knowledge. Our, our, or those who, who advocate for free will, libertarian free will, would say this, that it's the outcome, our destiny is not dependent on God, but our free will. We decide whether we end up in heaven or in hell. And so they would say, of course, there has to be middle knowledge. has to be all these kind of different possibilities that God knows. So they base God's knowledge on possibilities rather than on his decree, what he has decided, what is final. So in simple terms, God knows what you would possibly do, what you would possibly say or think in every case, but the outcome is still depending on you. This is, of course, not in line with what the Bible teaches about the omniscience of God, of God's knowledge as we will see today. But I want you to, to, to remember it. You, I want you to, to recognize if you ever, ever hear someone who comes and claims to you, God has middle knowledge. Or they say they are a Molinist. Uh, what's his name? William Lane Craig is a Molinist. You've probably heard about him. So then you know what that is. Why they believe like that. But we'll see again that the Bible does not teach any such thing. But again, that God is all-knowing because he has decreed everything. So, let's look a little bit more closely on these two aspects that I mentioned. God's knowledge of himself and of everything outside of himself. And another way to speak of this is his natural knowledge. That's his knowledge of himself and his free knowledge, the knowledge of, of everything that is created. Everything that is not God. His free knowledge and his, or his natural knowledge and free knowledge. And it might seem a little bit over the top. Why am I mentioning this? This isn't ever mentioned in the Bible. You don't find natural knowledge or, or free knowledge in the Bible. So why do I mention it? Well, because it's important to remember these two aspects. It's important to not conflate them and put them together and, and think that God's knowledge is one single unit. We must remember that there's, there's a distinction in God's knowledge. His, his natural knowledge, his knowledge of himself is not dependent on his free knowledge, his uh, knowledge of creation. He does not need creation. He does not need anything. He does not need to know us to know his love. He does not need to know how we choose or decide Enable to know himself. The Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father, regardless of our existence. So there is a distinction. We should also be careful not to, to separate them too much, so that we make everything that God do arbitrary. That he is... Uh, his uh, natural knowledge, his knowledge of himself is so separated from his knowledge of us that he, he just makes arbitrary choices in his election. He chooses that and that and that person. No, his election, everything that he, that he do or he does is dependent on his 
natural knowledge, his knowledge of himself. Because he knows that he is holy and loving, because he knows that he elects those which will bring him the most glory. He has elected a people for himself in a plan that glorifies God the most. The lowlife, the humble people. He elects people that are not high, that are, are very low in life. This brings God more glory. So we must keep these two different aspects of God's knowledge in mind. Not conflating them, not separating them too much, but keeping them in mind. That we know what it means when we talk about the knowledge of God. So with this little introduction, I'm sure you're all prepared now for a little bit of a Bible study. Let's not forget about that. So, uh, first of all, God's, per- first, God's perfect self-knowledge. Right. Let's go to Matthew 11 in our Bibles. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. And while you turn there, let me remind you a little bit about the context in, in Matthew 11. Jesus is here rebuking the people in the towns where he has been ministering, where he has been preaching. He's uh, rebuking them for their unwillingness to repent, to turn from their sins. In, in the immediately preceding verse to, to verse 27, Jesus praises the Father for hiding the things of the kingdom of heaven from the wise and intelligent and uh, revealing them to infants, to, to babes, to the low lives. So he adds then in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then this verse is followed by the much-quoted verses 28 through 30, where we find, rest in Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary, so forth. So in verse 27, we see two things. First, that Jesus is sovereign, in whom he chooses to reveal the Father to. It's his decision to reveal the Father, and it's not dependent on anything or anyone, any, any person who listens to him. It's not dependent on their choices. He is sovereign. He is free in making that choice. It's his free will. So Jesus asks God, doesn't have middle knowledge so that he can see every single possibility. What if Peter believes in me? What if he doesn't believe in me? What if John believes in me? What if he doesn't believe in me? But, but rather, Jesus as God knows what God has decreed. He knows his disciple. He knows them. He know, knows that they will follow him. That they will be his witnesses after he is dead. He doesn't have middle knowledge. He has perfect self-knowledge of himself, of his Father, of whom the Father has chosen for eternal life. That's the first point. And the second point, that he has perfect knowledge of the Father and the Father of the Son. As it says here, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. The persons in the Trinitarian God 
all know themselves and each other perfectly. They have perfect knowledge of whom the other is. There's nothing hidden from any one of those. Jesus isn't, doesn't have or lacks knowledge that the Father has. And the Spirit doesn't lack knowledge that the Son and the Father has. But they all know because they all share in the same divine essence. Another word used here to know is epiginosko in Greek. Epiginosko. And the word has a more of a, a it, it means to know, have knowledge, of course, to find out. But it also has a, has a different meaning, having something else than intellectual knowledge. Also means something more intimate, having intimate knowledge of each other. Being in a close relationship with someone. Jesus knows the Father intimately. And the Father knows the Son intimately. As only the Father and the Son can know each other intimately, lovingly. This, this isn't merely knowledge, head knowledge about who the Son is or who the Father is. But they know each other on a deep, intimate love relationship between them. Between the persons in the Godhead. We see this many times. It's not only here, especially in the Gospel of John, we see this word know being used between the persons in the Godhead. John 10, for example, states this, 10, uh, 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down the, my life for the sheep. This isn't merely having knowledge of someone, but actually knowing that someone, loving that someone. He speaks of an intimate relationship that involves deep feelings of love. And it is this kind of knowledge that God has shown us. He sent his son to die for us. This, that's not just intellectual knowledge. That's, that's something more. That's intimate. That's love. He died. Christ died for us. He lays down his life for the sheep. He knows them that way. Lovingly. That's the knowledge that the world does not have. The world can know of God. Can know of Jesus. We can tell an unbeliever of, of who God is. What his name is. Yahweh. But they will still not know him. They will not have a relationship with him. It will, they, God will not be their father. And Jesus will not be their savior. John 17 says this. O righteous father. Although the world has not known you. Yet I have known you. And these have known that. These have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. And will make it known. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The world does not have this knowledge. We have this knowledge of God. We can love him. We can have an intimate relationship with him. It's not perfect. It's not the same kind or, or goes so deep as God's love for himself, the son's love for the father and the father's love for the son. But we can have a part of it. We can see it. We can, we can taste it. 
the perfect, intimate knowledge. That's God's self-knowledge. It's intellectual and intimate. It's perfect, it's independent, doesn't depend on any one of us, what we do or say or, or pray or think. It's exhaustive and it's intimate. Only God knows God this way. It's his perfect natural knowledge. And then the second aspect of God's omniscience. This is usually what you, what you talk about when you, when you talk about the omniscience of God. God's perfect knowledge of everything outside himself. And we could, of course, spend hours here. It's, you can find books that are that thick just on God's free knowledge, his knowledge of creation. There are too many Bible verses to go through every single one. So uh, we'll be realistic and just pick a few, be, a, be in a few categories of his, his, this kind of knowledge. And the ones I, I, I want us to be a little bit more aware of is the fact that first, God does not learn anything, as I mentioned already. He's never instructed. He's never put under a teacher. He does not gain information about creation. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40 and let's read from that chapter. Isaiah chapter 40. This is the chapter of a, what should you call it, the divine human comparison where uh, we see how vastly superior God is to everything, to everyone. The, uh, the title here in, in the NASB, which I read from, is The Greatness of God. The greatness of God. It serves a reminder to the people of God how, of, of, of whom God is. You can read this chapter and be instant, instantly transformed. But let's read verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit, spirit of the Lord? Or who, or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult? Or who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? The answer is obvious to all these questions. No one did. No one directed the spirit of the Lord. No one informed him. No one gave him counsel. God went to no one for consultation no one gave him understanding. No one taught God the path of justice. No one taught him knowledge. No one informed, a God, informed God of the way of understanding. No one. God's knowledge of all the things outside himself is perfect. He's not in need to be informed or instructed Open theists, if you ever hear about open theism, claim that God learns as, as the creation progresses, that he gains information. Obviously, they have never read these verses. The free will libertarians, there are many of those, they, they, they say that God looks down the, the corridors of time and he sees what man will do. 
if they will obey him or disobey him. And he, he learns from looking down that corridor of time. He adds information to himself. But God doesn't learn from anyone or anything. He doesn't look down the corridors of time to learn anything. He doesn't need to learn anything because everything that happens in time, in creation, happens because he has decided it, because he has decreed it. You've heard me say this, I've said it quite, quite often, that God knows the future because he has decreed it. This, that sounds great, but is it in the Bible? Do we know that for sure? Let's, uh, let's jump forward to uh, Isaiah 46, a few chapters forward. This is the second category I want you to, to know when it comes to God knowing everything outside himself. That he alone is the one who can accurately foretell or, should we say, declare the future. Isaiah 46, let's read from verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring from the end, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have been done, not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. This is the test of who is God and who is not. Only God can declare from ancient times that which has not happened. Only God can proclaim the future. But this is not simply telling what will happen as some kind of fortune teller. I see this will happen. I see that will happen. It is, it is not as if God has seen a movie of all existence and he has, he has seen through it. He knows everything. Again, looking down the corridors of time. Like we see a movie. And we know what happens. That's annoying when you are with those people who have seen a movie and then they say, Oh, this will happen. This will happen. Shut up. I don't know. God is not like that. He's, he hasn't seen a movie of all creation, of all everything that happens, and he tells what will happen because he has seen that movie. No, God's perfect knowledge of everything outside himself is rooted in this. In verse 10, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God has declared from the beginning his purpose, his plan, his decree, what he in his good pleasure has decided. What God has planned, he will do. What he has decided will happen. God knows the things that take place because it is they are subject to what he has purposed. They are subject to his good pleasure, to his will. To his decree. His good pleasure dictates the history of the world. Not us. God does. Therefore he knows everything. That will happen in the future. 
But God doesn't only know events. Let's, let's not only think that God can predict events or tell what will happen in a big events. He knows persons. He knows individuals like you and me. He knows names. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts, our intentions. This is the third point I want to show to you in God knowing everything outside himself. And again, there are too many verses that we could go to. So let's, let's just pick a two, two passages of scripture. Turn with me to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. You probably recognize Jeremiah 17 and the passage we're going to read. It's a, it's a verse we often quote to show that the human heart is not good, but evil, wicked. It's in desperate need of curing something that, ev- that shows and evidences the tro- total depravity of man. The man is sinful. So from verse 9, let's read verse 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. There is in these two verses captured the horrifying truth of the state of man. He's lost. His heart, his innermost person, uh, be a part of his person, is deceitful more than all else. It's desperately sick. And it is so hidden from our understanding. We don't even understand how sick it is, how wicked it is. Man is so corrupt in his state that he, he doesn't even comprehend it. But he knows he's lost. Man knows he's wicked. Man knows that God knows everything about his heart. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. How horrifying this is for the human race. Not only is every man and woman desperately sick, they're wicked about their own understanding. Not only does God know how sinful each person is, he also searches the heart. He tests the mind. He penetrates. He sees right through us, to the innermost part of our being, to the core of man. He alone understands how wicked we are. And he tests it. He puts it on trial. And why does he put the heart of man on trial? To give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Not only is man wicked, sick, in desperate need of healing. Not only does God see all this, not only does God test this, but he will also give in accordance to our deeds. He records everything that we do and say and think and he gives according to that. This is not 
good news for those who have not bowed their knee to God. He knows your rebellion perfectly. And I think this points directly to the terror of guilt that every single man has. That plagues every man. We know that we are not good people. We often say that that and that person has a good heart. No, they don't. And we know that. We know they have a bad heart. We know they are desperately sick. We know that. We know that when everything is laid before us, there is only one verdict. Guilty. Guilty. I understand why unbelievers hate God. They don't want a God who sees everything and knows everything. And an omniscient God. They don't want someone to expose them. To know them so thoroughly. To see everything they do. They don't want God to look at them. They want God to overlook them. The Bible says that the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Their guilt plagues them. They cannot even, they cannot live truly in peace here or ever. There will be no true peace for them. They always have to look over their shoulders. What if someone knows? What if someone finds out? What if someone comes and holds me responsible? What if, what if, what if, what if is always there in their back of their heads reminding them they are guilty. And God will help hold everyone responsible to give each man according to his ways. He can do that because he knows everything. He knows the heart of man. And... Uh, us believers, he knows and holds us responsible as well. Wait a minute, you say. Wait, wait a minute. Aren't we saved from the judgment of God? We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from being condemned with the unrighteous and sent to eternal punishment. But God will hold us responsible. There will be rewards in heaven. There will be a reckoning also for believers. You cannot live however you want as a Christian. God will hold you responsible. You will be scrutinized. You will be given according to your way. So let's turn to one last scripture. One of the most used scripture when we come to the omniscience of God. Psalm 139. I'm sure you know this. Psalm 139. It's uh, one of the most terrifying psalms and one of the most comforting psalms at the same time. Same time. Terrifying, of course, because it so clearly shows that God sees everything in us. And comforting because... We who are believers know that that is a good thing. It is so that we might have our sins exposed. It is so that we might be cleansed from them. The divine physician who can heal our hearts exposes it 
and cleans it. So, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on your tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. God knows it all. Would you be comfortable with someone who knew you so thoroughly as God knows you? To be, for someone to be so close to you that they would be able to tell where you're going to say even before you say it. We who have wives or husbands might sometimes think that they complete our sentence before we've said it. Well, God knows even better than our husbands or wives what we're going to say. And do you know how someone really, really loves you? When they have lived so close to you, seen everything about you, all your failures, all your frustrations, everything that is bad in your life, have seen it and experienced it, has suffered under it, and still they stay with you. Still they love you. God knows us more perfectly than our wives or husbands or friends or family members ever will do. He knows everything, and yet... And yet he loves his people so much that he sacrifices his own son. He lets his son bleed and die for a dirty, rotten sinner like you. This is love. This is agape. This is divine love. And how should we respond to this omniscience? Do it in the same way that David do, does here in this psalm, in verse 23 and 24, where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. God is for us. He's on our side. He is our Friend, he's not against us. He has literally bought you. You are his possession. There's nothing in us, in you, that God has not already seen and known. He knows you inside and out. Do as David did. Expose that sin. Cry out to God in the same way. Search me, God. Know me, God. Try me, God. Do you ever pray that to God? Search me, God. Try me, God. Know me. If there is any sin, anything that is a hurtful thing, a hurtful way in me, O Lord, cleanse me from it. Lead me in the everlasting way. Do you pray that? Do you go to the Father and say, If there is any hurtful way in me, remove it. Search me so thoroughly, so deeply, so that that hurtful way is removed and replaced by the way 
everlasting. So want to be made clean. Want to be purified. Want the penetrating gaze of God upon your life. And the healing balm of his hand. Then your heart will be healed. You will no longer be sick. You will be made new. You will bear good fruit. And you will gladly look forward to the day of judgment. You will gladly look forward to the day when God will put forward everything that you have done. And you will see how wicked he was and how good he became or she. Not only is your fear of God's wrath gone, your whole life will become a song, a joy of living the life that we live in Christ. What God has done for you, what he is doing for you. You want to proclaim it from the housetops. Look at me, look at how wicked I was and look at what God has done with me. Amazing. There will be rewards in heaven. There will be crowns of glory. Strive towards that goal as Paul did. Run the race to the end. So, beloveds, you have nothing to fear in the penetrating gaze of God, in his omniscience that he knows everything, that he sees everything. You have nothing to fear. Rejoice in his omniscience. Rejoice that he knows everything. Be glad that he exposes your sin. That he turns you from that way to a way of everlasting life. So rejoice. He has paid you with his own son's blood. Christ has paid far too much for you. For you to throw it all away in sinful pleasures. But oh unbeliever, I cannot say the same thing about you. You are not in the same boat. You have everything to fear. Literally everything. Everything. Because God knows everything. God knows you completely. He knows you thoroughly. He sees to the very point. To the very core of you. Surely there is guilt within you. You know it. You know that you are guilty. And. I'm not saying this because I stand here thinking I am guiltless. I am perfect. No way. I am just like you. I am as guilty as you are. I stand before God in in my guilt and my sins as well. But there is one difference between me and you. And that is Christ. I have Christ. He paid the ransom for my sin. When I could not do it. I could never, ever, ever do it. He paid ransom for my sin. He saved me. He healed my heart. I didn't even know how wicked my heart was. But he knew. And he loved me. He saved me. You cannot save yourself. You cannot heal your sick heart. But if you turn to him, if you trust him, If you go to him and say, I am wretched and sinful and wicked, please save me, Lord. 
the promise of everlasting life is for you. It is for you. It's a guarantee. Because Jesus did not come to to save those that does, does not need salvation. He came to save sinners. He came to heal those who need a physician. Or in desperate need of someone to make them healthy. So go to him this day, not tomorrow, not in a month, not in a year, but now. Go to him, seek him, cry out to him, search me, Lord, try me, Lord, test my ways, save me, Lord. He will do it. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Lord, our Father in heaven, thank you for reminding us, for instructing us, for showing us your character, Lord. Your perfect knowledge of everything in you and outside of you. That you know everything that happens and no one can instruct you. That we know that you are so perfect in your being and nothing catches you by surprise. Oh Lord, we are reminded of our own unperfect state, how wicked we are and how desperately sick our hearts once was. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for taking us to be yours when we did not seek you. Oh Lord, make us humble. Remind us of our past. Remind us of who we once were so that we don't grow proud in our hearts, Lord. Save by grace as we are, Lord. Remind us, search our heart. Test it, Lord. Replace the way of the hurtful way with the everlasting way, Lord, in each and every one of us. And save those, Lord, who have heard your word this Sunday, who are so guilty and they know it, Lord. Speak into their hearts as only you can, Lord. Save them. Show them Christ, the true physician who can heal the desperately sick heart. Lord, we ask this, that your name would be glorified. In our Lord and Savior's name. Amen.